0: Hello and welcome to this VG Oncology podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in oncology. Today, we will be discussing updates in KRAS targeting and oncogenically driven lung cancer, which were presented at the British Thoracic Oncology Group's 19th annual conference. First up, Colin Lindsay of the Christie NHS Foundation Trust in the UK gives an overview of the history of KRAS targeting in clinical trials.
1: So KRAS mutation is the most commonly mutated oncogene in cancer. It affects roughly 30% of non-small cell lung cancer in particular. Uh, And with this work that we've seen developing, it's a G12C mutation that's common to lung cancer where we've seen inroads. Before we think about this progress, I think the context of it needs to be recognised in terms of the difficulty that we've had in the past. The mutation was discovered in 1983 and has been considered for over 30 years to be undruggable. And if you compare with BRAF mutation, for instance, it was recognised in roughly, I think, 2002 and had a tractable treatment available in 2009, so a development that only took, uh, seven, I think, 7 to 8 years at the time. This progress has really been a momentous shift into terming KRAS mutant cancer is something that is druggable rather than undruggable. The clinical trial disappointments with KRAS mutant targeting in the past can probably be looked at in particular in three senses. First of all, there was the introduction of farnesyl transferase inhibitors with trials around 10 to 15 years ago, which were disappointments. The biological basis for this was that KRAS was thought to be dependent on f- farnesyl transferase for translocation from the cancer cell cytoplasm into the plasma membrane in order to become active. It turned out this wasn't the case, and that's some of the reason why these clinical trials were a disappointment. They, and, and these drugs have actually made a revival recently in a transmutant cancer, which does um, happen to be dependent on farnesylation The second disappointment uh, occurred with MEK inhibition and makes a protein immediately downstream to KRAS mutation. So again, a sound biological basis for trials such as a select one phase three trial. But again, this trial was, I think, a big disappointment at the time. Part of the reason for this was there were very promising randomised phase two results suggesting that this would work, emphasising the importance of, at least in this setting, performing large-scale randomised phase three studies. Some of the other reason why this failed was really just down to the biological rewiring of uh, KRAS mutant cancer in the setting of MEC inhibition. And, and the last emerging step, which I think at least has been a disappointment so far, is this concept of synthetic lethality, with the main synthetic lethality target with KRAS mutation postulated as CDK4. We've had trials now looking at in- inhibition of this protein. In KRAS mutant cancer such as a phase 3 KRAS selected Juniper study and the results haven't been promising so far suggesting that these drugs would at least need to be combined with something else and that immediately brings into, into play the possibility of toxicity concerns in frail patients.
0: Next, Colin Lindsay gives an update on two ongoing clinical trials, the CRYSTAL1 trial and the COBREK100 trial both of which are investigating therapies which target KRAS G12C mutant lung cancer.
1: The momentous results that I mentioned so far in my talk relate to the G12C point mutation that occurs most commonly in lung cancer. It's about 12 to 14% of non-squamous lung cancer, so a group of patients comparable to the GFR mutant subset. What we've seen from studies such as crystal Assessing AdagraZib and Codebreak 100, Um, assessing Satorazib so far, have been response rates in the region of 35 to 45%, and clinical benefit rates about 80 to 95%. Because these drugs hit mutant protein, they are also very tolerable as they don't tend to affect other cells in the body. Uh, so we so that gives great leverage for potential combinations in the future, too. But I would add at this stage that we've mainly only seen response rates. I think we have a progression-free survival near six months for Satorazib and more to see in terms of progression-free survival from Madagrazib. So. There are future trials that, are, that, are, that are, well, trials ongoing that need to be reported, and we, we, we anticipate that some of this data will be positive, but ultimately we, we do need to see those results.
0: Finally, Samreen Ahmed of the University Hospitals of Leicester in the UK discusses clinical trials of therapies for oncogenically
2: driven lung cancer, highlighting difficulties around conducting these trials in the UK. So being a member of the NCRI Advanced Lung Cancer Group, as well as the main CSG, um, I was tasked by Fiona Backel to um, look at clinical trials in um, oncogenically driven uh, lung cancer and what are the gaps, what the clinical need, uh, particularly for the UK, is. So, um, you know, drugs are really expensive, taken millions to develop, There's a big thrust of pharma behind number of drugs, sequencing of drugs, combination with chemotherapy. So I went through all of that. And really, we're not going to be able to compete with that for sure. And we we wouldn't want to. And so really, the academic community needs to come up with trials that have questions that are in real life never going to be answered by pharma. And so that was my brief, really, to look at things that were actual problems and quandaries for us as clinicians in clinic and yet pharma were never going to be addressed that but because it wasn't they're not commercial necessarily questions but they're uh, important questions for clinicians and patients when you know we meet and when we treat patients um in real life so i floated two or three um um ideas. One of them was looking at um, circulating DNA and trying to pick up um, disease before it clinically manifested. And I think the, 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 there are designs of this um, uh, out there and being done but this was specifically looking at um, prior to patients becoming clinically poorer in their performance status because of progressing perhaps brain or cns disease so it was trying to pick up disease early and therefore we could intervene earlier before their uh, performance status fell so that was one of them my second um uh, sort of plan was uh, to look at these patients who actually live very well normally and very much longer than we um, originally anticipated because they've got specific oncogenic drivers and we've got very good targeted tr- drugs against um, these oncogenic drivers and really was to look at whether pulmonary rehabilitation, which um, has been a a small interest of mine for a long time now, um, and whether this uh, an exercise intervention can make a difference in quality of life and outcomes for these patients. And it was really applying the principle that pulmonary rehabilitation at a six-week program is well-established in um, chronic pulmonary um, disease and interstitial lung disease in terms of outcome measurements such as um, admissions into hospital. Due to infective exacerbations and generally quality of life improvement. So, can this be then applied to our um, oncogenically driven lung cancer patients who are are generally non smokers who don't have underlying lung disease? And it's really to see whether they'll be able to get that capacity back from their lungs, uh, you know, with regards to the treatment, but also add in exercise and try and allow them to live better for longer.
0: We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VG Oncology and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with us. Visit vgoncology.com for the latest updates from the experts themselves, as well as exclusive coverage in lung cancer. And be sure to subscribe to VG Oncology podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean.